I'm Ankur. And I'm Phoebe. And this is Arts Work. We work at Sadler's Wells, a leading dance organization. And this is a podcast where we look at different roles in the creative industries and how you could find your way in. Okay, Ankur, so who are we hearing from this week? So this week, I had the great pleasure of speaking to Adam Kazari, who is a social media guru. He focuses on telling the stories of museums in the social media space. Adam came to real public attention for a tweet he put out about an enormous sheep who he called an absolute unit. And this tweet then led to this sort of meme storm that came out of it. (laughs) And what I love about Adam is he's passionate about museums. He loves working with old historic objects. But what he also loves is storytelling. And what he's able to convey really compellingly is how working in social media for museums brings those two things together in a really meaningful way. Doing social media for yourself is different to doing it on behalf of an organization. Totally. At Sadler's Wells, part of my role is working with our folks who run our social media and then also doing digital content. In this episode, you'll hear us talk about this really interesting cross-section of working in social media for an organization where you can bring the skills that you have in your personal social media presence or what you know from working on TikTok for yourself or, or from your own blog, but actually thinking about that for an organization and in a lot of ways becoming the voice of that organization. And that has a lot of power. It has a lot of influence. It has a lot of possibility, but it also has a lot of responsibility. And we'll hear a really interesting set of stories that take Adam from the Museum of English Rural Life, called Merle for short, to having an online exchange with Elon Musk, who's the chief executive of Tesla, the American car manufacturer, and then back to the Royal Academy where he is now and how he navigated working in social media, but in a lot of different contexts. In the episode, you'll hear a question from Tasha, who works at Sadler's Wells in our social media. She had a question for Adam about well-being in these types of roles. Well, that sounds brilliant. So where do we start? We start by hearing about how Adam grew up loving video games and how that led him to a career in social media for museums. I grew up in the Black Country. It's a weird place. It's like, it's a mixture of post-Thatcherite decline in industry in the Black Country. So it was a kind of strange place to grow up because there wasn't really industries left. It was quite unclear what to do for a job near Birmingham. But going to Birmingham Museum and Art Galleries was always part of my childhood. I was quite lucky to have that. Why did you have that? Something to do. There's nothing to do. So you go to museums and art galleries. Like, what do you do with your kids? Just throw them in there, see what happens. <laughs> and what did happen? Well, actually, it just, I don't think it has much of a bearing on like, my choice for university. Because I don't know about you, but I grew up in the Belay years where they were like, follow your passions and you'll get a job and it will be fine because the economy is fine. And so I decided to go for ancient history because of a video game. Um, I played Rome Total War as a teenager. I was like, this is fun. I'll just dig into that for a bit. (laughs) So you went into ancient history as opposed to computer programming or (laughs) like that was the lesson from the video game. (laughs) Well, like ICT in secondary school was literally here's how to use Google and here's how to use a Word document. I think it's much better now, but they didn't really open up the opportunities. I was like, oh, working in computers is spreadsheets. Who wants to do that? I mean, social media wasn't even a thing until I was properly in university, I guess, because I think 2009 was when it started kicking off, I'd say. That's when most people seem to have joined Facebook as like institutions. Some of them might have gone in a bit earlier. 
I don't think digital was even then seen as like a career path in museums. So they were still telling us like doing museum studies masters, get yourself over into debt, spend another year studying, see whether this economic crisis will just go over our heads or something. It did not. But yeah, I managed to get a scholarship to do that because career service was saying, yeah, that's what you need to do to get into museums. And without that scholarship, I don't think I would have been able to do it. You go into history because you were interested in those stories from the video games. How do you go from that moment to going, I want to work in museums? I think it was a classic careers talk. So University of Manchester, I think it was the curator of anthropology. The university is tied to the museum, basically. I think he said, like, oh, my job is... I think he used the example, he got to go to China to work on an exhibition. And he spent all of his day working with history, working with objects, working with community groups. And I was like, that sounds like a way of carrying on my passion and getting paid for it. You got an MA. That was your path into museums. But you're yeah. saying that's not necessary? No. A, th- a lot of people were saying it was back then. And I think the sector and people in general have moved on pretty well since then. Um, not completely. So there are still pockets where it hasn't moved along. But most of the people I talk to are way more interested in just transferable skills and actually what you've done. So you don't have to go through this academic route, basically. Because we need people with new ideas because the ivory tower has been crumbling for decades and we really need just to completely knock it down. And we need people to help us do that. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, it's exciting, but it's a very slow process. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think we all share this sort of feeling that change is slow. Yeah. Let's speed it up. And please apply for jobs to help us speed it up. I think you'd be surprised the jobs you can get, even if you don't think you would fit into like museums and galleries like mine, like the Royal Academy of Arts. But if you have good ideas and you have the right experience, even if you don't have like a background in the arts or history or universities, that's fine. We need more people like that. Were you thinking about the jobs you're doing now when you were studying for the MA? I started studying my MA without any real idea of what I wanted to do in museums. I think there was a vague idea that I wanted to work with collections. I think most people, if they even have the spark of wanting to work in museums, without knowing the variety of roles, that it's like, I like working with history, I like working with objects. We did a little bit of exhibitions work, a little bit of community work, a little bit of like why museums exist and their role in society. And part of that involved doing things on social media, but it wasn't at that point that I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. But it did make me start writing a blog, which I think helped me land my first job. What was the blog? Talking about going to museums, exhibition reviews, kind of boring stuff like that. But even then, not many people were doing it, I don't think. You're showing what you want to do off your own back. Yeah, essentially. And I think the modern version of that is having your own social media presence and a blog, I think always helps because obviously content comes in 50 different forms. Whereas now we might even be looking for people doing like presenter-led TikToks on their own time which I'm not saying you need to do that to get a job, but it would help. (laughs) Tell us about the first job then. You see a job posting. How did that happen? What did you do? Well, I think it's probably worth saying first that I think I'd applied to about 50 jobs before I even landed this first one. So it was a project officer at the Museum of English Rural Life in Reading. They were doing a heritage lottery funded project to redo the entire museum. And they needed someone to, you know, help with the grunt work. It was actually a really nice job to start with because it was so open-ended. And they gave me a lot of freedom to just pitch in with things I wanted to do after I got the main job done. How do you go from there to then running their social media? Part of it was just the opportunity was there. There was an amazing marketing manager and she got them on all the channels, was doing the usual stuff. She was always struggling to get other people in the museum to contribute. She knew that social media was more than marketing. 
that we needed collection stories, that we needed stories from the learning groups, we needed stories about the day-to-day so that people could see the museum had a personality, had all these things to offer. I wouldn't say social media is a level playing field, but it allows small museums to punch above their weight. It is a fascinating museum, an amazing collection, and it's just like getting that enthusiasm across, like, forget your preconceptions, come here, you will learn something really interesting. As I was working on the interpretation of a museum gallery, so all the text labels, deciding the stories, it was really fascinating work, but I was really frustrated with the pace of it. And what I found was I loved telling these stories on social media more because it gave me that freedom to tell it in a much more personal way without having to worry about it lasting five years because tweets just go. And the more I was doing that, the more people were talking back. I loved having these conversations. You can mix and match images and stories and audio and video and tell stories in just much more dynamic ways. Mm. I absolutely loved it. And I kind of pursued it when the contracts were a bit iffy taking a part-time job at the Bodleian Libraries at University of Oxford. Sometimes I wish I could just drop everything and go back to that job. I love that everyone should go to the Bodleian. They've got amazing exhibitions all the time as well. It's also where I first started realising that we could not be serious all the time. Mm. And actually being able to do that at the University of Oxford was a revelation, where we started playing around with tone. So yeah, that really helped me decide social media is something I just want to pursue. But it was waiting for the right opportunity. And then you're at Merle. Yeah, I went back to Merle for an Arts Council-funded project, which was about digital transformation. We started with this problem statement, which I think was the museum's visitors weren't as diverse as we would have liked. We weren't taking advantage of new ways of talking to people digitally, which we thought would lead to irrelevance and fewer visitors in the long run. You as an organisation are training yourself up to make yourself relevant. What did you do? Anyone that works in content knows that you need content in the first place. You need something to make a story out of. And the most annoying thing about galleries and museums is that we sit on mountains of content. We literally have storerooms full of content with objects and their stories. But it's not necessarily very easy to know what to pick because you need to work with the collection. You need all that knowledge. We agreed red lines with them where we said we wouldn't um, take the piss out of living people and kind of also historical people. So we tried to keep it safe. Stick to animals, stick to history, stick to that kind of thing. So there's a lot of trust building. It's not just being let loose on the collection. It's working with people. We were dabbling with memes as a way of making the collections relevant to a new audience, trying to show that if you've been to the countryside, if you've met people that live in the countryside, they will tell you that the countryside is this very, there's a lot of humour there. And one day I did this tweet from the collection of this big ram, I think it was an Exmoor horn ram. And I just said, look at this absolute unit on it. And it was kind of like just dashed off because I had that phrase in my head from seeing it on Twitter before. Yeah. And when I found this sheep in the collection, because I think it was International Unicorn Day and I was trying to find a sheep with a horn growing out of its head because I'd seen that happening. Of course you were. Yeah, of course I was. Which is like the worst way of doing content. And which I still do. <laughs> which um, we all still do. <laughs> yeah. But instead I found this sheep and I was like, that's a really impressive sheep and tweeted it. And I mean, the sheep is huge. It is huge. And there's a reason it's huge. It's because it was bred as a sheep for mutton and for its wool. So it's like a dual purpose sheep. You can shear it and you can eat it. And as our taste in mutton has declined, that sheep breed is now a lot leaner actually and they just use it for the wool. It's a real shame because mutton biryani is a delight. 
Yeah. I make it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that kicked off. I think it ended up with about 30,000 retweets and over 130,000 likes, I think. And kind of catapulted us into this. I think the meme played around for like two or three days of people just remixing it into other memes, sending us funny remarks. And we were just replying to them, making new memes off the back of it as well. But also, again, going back to that reputation building, making sure that we're telling that deeper story of rural history and like why the sheep was so impressive, telling the story of the museum to all these people who were new to it. It allowed us to have this tone, which I think everyone knows works on social media, where it's very personal, it's relatable, we can have conversations. It's not like an institution voice. It's like talking to a person, which is why I always try and say to people, like, you need to talk to people like you talk to people in the galleries to get that enthusiasm across when you're saying, this is an amazing museum, look at this thing, hear this story, which I don't think you can really get away with at bigger institutions with longer histories. So it's very much like a mix of right time, right place, and just right collection. And Being able to build a persona for something that didn't have something so established in the public consciousness almost. Yeah, it's almost like starting with a blank slate. It's not a one-off, right? Like it's not this one-off viral number. You have a history of animal Twitter that works. I was terrified it was going to be a one-off because it really could have been. Like it did really well. We got roughly 25,000 new followers. So we went from like 10,000 on Twitter to 35,000. But I think it's on around 157,000 now. And we built that up because it was really just getting into that groove of the rest of the museum now were like, oh, okay, social media might actually be a good thing. It might actually be a powerful way of telling our stories. And it led to people telling me more things that happened day to day and things they found in the collections, things happening um, around the museum. One example was a bat, which we found in the archives. So the archives are they're meant to be fortresses of environmental conditioning and protection so that things don't deteriorate. But I've that, watched the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> I know what it's meant to be like. <laughs> this bat, though, was tiny. I don't know what the parallel would be in the Da Vinci Code. but The bat itself was small. Yeah, which is how it got in. Golf ball size? Roughly, yeah. It could fit in the palm of your hand, which is why we didn't find it for a few days. We just found it chilling above a fire escape. And again, this could have been something that we were just like, oh, that's cool. And then we just get rid of the bat. Or you could have said, we don't want to talk about this bat because we don't want people to know things are getting into the museum. Yeah, like a lot of professional angst of saying, oh, this shouldn't have happened. But luckily, we knew it was an opportunity. And actually, one of our volunteers was... She worked for the Bat Conservation Trust. Oh, great. So she took it home and she has this room in her house with cages of bats and she nursed it back to health. And they eventually released it. And we, we charted that entire journey of like them feeding the bat milk and like just how cute it was. And they also managed to give us all this information about it's a pipistrelle that usually comes from Russia down to France. And it started coming to the UK because of climate change, they think. And we could tell this whole story of migration and climate change, as well as educate people about bats and why they're protected, why we had to care for it and release it in a certain way, make sure there weren't ever any of the bats roosting in the building, etc. But we also managed to be cheeky with it and like talk to the university itself and ask whether we could get the bat a library card. And we got it one called Merlin the Bat, I think, because Museum of English Rural Life's acronym is the Mo. We, as in as a creative sector, are thinking about social media very differently to how we might have done 10 years ago, for example. 10 years ago, an institution like Sadler's Wells would have gone, great, tomorrow we need to sell X number of tickets, so we're going to tell everybody about the show and tell them to buy tickets and, you know, link in bio to buy. 
audiences don't want that anymore. And actually, that's not the biggest value you can get from social media. Can you explain how doing social media for a museum or a gallery or an archive is different to doing social media in your personal life? It's weird, isn't it? Because I think why Wall Museum started with that kind of marketing frame of mind and it's because social media is essentially a tool for getting adverts in front of people's faces. Yep. So it's an opportunity to say, here's what's going on. It's like having a leaflet for your door, having an advert on the tube. But people's motivations for being on social media are generally to be entertained, to connect with friends, to learn new things. And if we keep talking in the same way that we did in our marketing, which is, here's the thing, we're not having a conversation. It's just really, really dull. And no one cares. We're not a person... We don't usually have a personal relationship with people, but we're trying to still talk on that same level without looking disingenuous and trying to pretend that we're a nice person, which actually some brands have done really well, like um, fast food places. What's that one? Wendy's. Where, I mean, a lot of people know exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. They're being funny, they're telling stories, but they're only doing it to sell burgers. The person who originally started doing that for Wendy's, the whole reason it kicked off was because she let a little bit of herself through into the social media, actually. You're trying to personify the organization, give it relatability. And people always talk about in the sense of building the brand identity, Mm -hmm. which is a disgusting way of putting it. What is it for you then? For me, it's trying to be as honest and engaging a window onto the organization as possible. And I think we get a little bit more slack because museums and galleries generally are for nice things. We're not an evil corporation, usually. There are exceptions. We're here to educate people. We're also here for debates. Social media is it's the museum mission writ large. That's a good statement. Is it? But it's tricky because it's difficult because people are terrified of social media. It's a lot of training. It's a lot of finding ways of getting that conversation online. It's dealing with trolls, which you don't usually get in a museum because people are a little bit... People don't shout at you too much in a museum. Mm. Front of house people will tell me I'm definitely wrong about that. Mm. But you don't necessarily get the same sort of vitriol. All the nastiest sides of humanity also come out on social media. And how we, as humans, who represent the organization, can face that trolling, can face that abuse online. Not necessarily directed at us personally, but either at the organization or the people we work with. How you manage that as a human is quite difficult. I mean, there's a lot more talk about mental health within the job at the moment, I think. It's the social media person who sees it and has to deal with it. And it's very difficult sometimes to like detach yourself and realize people are saying it about the institution and not necessarily about you. But it's also a very powerful tool because very often people working in their offices might not realize what's happening in the world. That might be a disservice to a lot of people, but people are having the culture war debates online and on social media. And you could miss it entirely if you're not on social media. And when people are replying to museums and galleries and saying, why aren't you platforming more diverse artists? Why are you not facing up to all of the dodgy ways the British Empire like looted and stole from across the world and how that impacts how we tell the stories of these objects to all of our children across the country and just saying, yes, the British Empire got this and isn't it lovely? And now you get to look at it and we're a museum for the world. Actually, it's a way of sparking those debates within the institution and we can't just reply to people and like stick a plaster over it and say oh we're sorry we're going to look into it without actually looking into it because people will they will hold you to account and we saw that a lot with um black lives matter and a lot of places still haven't fully 
faced up to it. I started really doing the work to kind of honestly say we're making change in that area, but it's because it's an institutional change. And it's actually like that immediate visitor feedback driving change within museums and galleries, which is interesting going back to the mill because all of that was just quite like nice, funny, lighthearted stuff. And there wasn't too much controversy, but a lot of museums and galleries can't fall back on that. They have to do both. They have to be engaging and relatable where it makes sense, but also honest and actually critical where it makes sense. The conversations on social media can lead to change within the institutions. Just because being funny and relatable works on social media doesn't mean that's all we have to do. I'm Tasha from South London. The nature of working in social media means that the lines between your work life and personal life can get blurred. How do you protect your personal time and keep these two separate? It's been a challenge to separate it over the years. I think everyone struggles with it. I think a lot of people struggle with work-life balance anyway. It was particularly difficult in my old jobs at the Museum of English Rural Life because I didn't have a work phone as well. So all of the organisational social media was just coming straight through to my personal phone. So sitting in the evening, it's replying to people, it's dealing with issues, it's trying to do fun things as well, which actually was all right for a bit because I was really enjoying it. But it did start to take its toll, I think. Eventually we settled into a rhythm where we just wouldn't reply on weekends and trying to set up more of like a parameter of what we do and don't reply to and trying to stick to that. But it's a lot of self-policing because... There was no one really around me saying, don't do this or do do this. At the academy, it's a bit different because I have a work phone. Just like, I feel like that's just, I've moved up to a big institution. I get a work phone. Oh my God. So at the Royal Academy, we're looking into things like, can we segment some of the queries? Can we make front of house their responsibility to reply to certain messages? I've also got a lot better at actually just not looking at my phone. Like I put my work phone down and I don't touch it after 5, 5.30, wherever I stop working. And don't come to it until the next day. And then that's when I do the replies and everything else. But it's really just a process of setting your own boundaries. Because even if boundaries are written down in a policy piece of paper, it's very often up to you, or if you're the manager, like actually taking that, being really proactive about saying, stop looking at your phone. If you even get stick from above of saying people replied to us at like 7pm last night, why haven't you replied yet? It's making sure that you're getting that kind of policy in place. Like we have work hours and if you want people to work in the evenings, then you even need to find a way of remunerating that or having a rotor. And I think it's just taking experience of years and knowing my own limits to just know when to turn off. I think I've seen places like the Barbican, they even have it in their Twitter bios where they say, like, we just don't reply on weekends. This is how we're going to respond to you. And this is almost like our contract with you as a follower. It's creating expectations for, for the yeah. audience. You have personal social media and work social media. Do you still do personal social media? Or are you like, I'm not going to do social media because I do that for a living? When I was starting out in the sector, really trying to find things out, have conversations, build my network, um, I used Twitter primarily because most museum professionals seem to use Twitter to talk. There's hashtag museum hour every week. And there's usually similar things for all different organisations. I think I've seen a theatre one knocking about. I was using that really heavily for the first few years of my career. Um, 
And it was incredibly helpful because you go to conferences and they'd say, I know you're off Twitter. A really good way of breaking the ice, but also a really good personal development tool. I'd just been like, I'm doing this thing. Does it work? Um, I was still blogging, so I was showing people my blogs. And I did very honest blogs about like my learning process as I've gradually like figured things out. Like I documented the whole tweet saga, how we dealt with it, post-mortems on our projects, that kind of thing. I have this incredible network and platform, which I always feel like I'm not using well enough to celebrate other people's work and to talk about my work. But I really want to get back into actually giving something back to the sector by giving them more of an insight into how we do stuff at a big institution and actually demystifying it a bit. Because when I worked in a small institution, I thought big institutions like run like clockwork, knew everything they were doing, and everything was just perfect. There's loads of money. And, oh, yeah, it would be great. And now that I'm here, some of those things are true to an extent. But actually, I think it would help people to know that very often we're tackling the same issues. And making it up as we go. Very often making it up as we go. Yeah. Doing social media in the creative industries is part of what you do and have done. It can also have so many other implications and so many other, it can open up so many other opportunities. You have a particular story that I want to hear. I do. I think it comes back to how actually museums and galleries aren't unique in struggling how to be relatable and do well on social media. Like so many big organizations are screaming out for someone to, to make them relatable, to have those viral moments, which are as much a product as luck as like building a community and a, like a consistency of tone and what we're for. And I can talk about what's probably on the public record, but not much else. But um, I did get a job at Tesla off the back of um, the tweet of the Museum of English Real Life and like how that dissipated into the world. The sheep tweet. The sheep tweet which now has its own page on knowyourmeme.com and that kind of thing, which is how it got picked up one day by the uh, the king of memes and Bond villain-esque billionaire. Is he a billionaire? Yep. Elon Musk. CEO he, of Tesla. CEO of Tesla. He retweeted something from MIT, I think, which is about, look at this absolute unit of a plane. And I think he replied using the sheep and saying, look at this absolute unit. I actually can't fully remember how that happened. He changed his profile picture to the sheep and then when I got wind of it, I changed the Museum of English Royal Life's Twitter picture to his face and changed the museum's name to the Muskeum of Elonglish Rural Life. <laughs> I even got into a little conversation with him through the museum account. And, uh, yeah, to skip the details, that ended up with a job offer to work as Tesla's social media manager, which was definitely a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, which I couldn't not take up and actually I'd already accepted a job at the Royal Academy at that point which I had to turn down just because I felt this is never going to happen again and I had I had expectations of particularly about how this job offer would even come up in the first place through just a stupid Twitter conversation how it might be to work at Tesla but I realized after a few months it just wasn't particularly for me amazingly the job at the Royal Academy of Arts was still being advertised and I went back and applied again groveled a bit i bought them a cake on my first day you know that drake meme where he's like shaking his head at one thing and it's like nodding his head at one thing it's like shaking his head at elon musk and nodding his head at the royal academy yeah so that was a really strange period of my life so now at the royal academy you're recruiting for people who are starting out in their career what jobs exist 
And then also what works really well and what doesn't work so well for people who are trying to break in? Well, at the moment, we're, we're right in the middle of recruiting for a digital content officer. And their job within the team is they'll be mainly line managed by me, but they'll be kind of half line managed by the website content manager as well. Because it's a job that really needs to help just get content out because it's a constant machine. It's like, this is my ancient history coming into play. Sisyphus pushing his rock up the hill for all eternity and it rolls back down the same day. For the next day, you just push it up again, rolls back down. Content is just relentless. Mm -hmm. It's every day. You need something, you need stories, you need things coming up in advance, you need to react to things that are happening day to day. So the job that we're recruiting for now, it's helping just keep that rhythm up, like working with other teams, getting formats sorted, and making sure we have content on our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And we have a Pinterest account, which is actually, God, we need to do something with that. I think every organization has one of those accounts where they're like, hold that one. What am I going to do with that account? The annoying thing is, it's really powerful, but it's that thing we need. It's all about resource. Yeah, it's a ton of work. And it's, it's a lot more than just pressing the button at the end. We needed someone who can both help us push out the content, but we also want someone who could challenge us with new ideas because actually i mean part of the job description is we need these nuts and bolts of skills like you need to know how social media works you need to know how the platforms work you need to have some idea of how to measure success and equally how that success carries through into fuzzier objectives like the mission so younger people are growing up in this digital environment where they're using social media every day in their lives usually and they know the kind of conversations people have how people talk on the different channels They might not necessarily know how to do the analytics side, but they kind of have this almost instinct of what is good and what isn't. If they're looking into this kind of job, hopefully they've also done content personally, or maybe they've kind of branched out into exploring their interests on social media as well. And what we're really looking for is someone who can push us because I'm 31 now. And TikTok is... As terrifying to me as it probably would have been to my um, grandma if she were still alive. I do go on TikTok and I do use it, but it's not a skill set that I've grown up with. You've got kids who are basically video editors in their own right now because they've used TikTok in their day-to-day lives. Mm -hmm. TikTok might not be appropriate for the academy yet. We need people who know those trends and know how to apply them to galleries and museums. We don't want someone who can just do a tweet about an event. We want someone who can say, Here's how to take that event and here's how to turn it into something almost new and suited to these channels, which is really easy to say out loud, but it's an incredibly difficult thing to find. And I feel really bad about saying, yeah, you have to be this amazingly imaginative person because usually the best ideas come from brainstorming and talking to people. If people are coming into the sector and want this kind of job, it really helps if you've used your passion in digital content already in some way, whether it's on your personal accounts or talking about your passion as an example of that creativity um i'm not saying that you have to have this incredible idea that you could imagine like an ad ad agency doing because it sounds very intimidating to just be like be creative it's like having that command be funny (laughs) it just completely shuts you down and you're like oh my god i'm so boring exactly (laughs) but it's like maybe if you're going to an interview you could look at what the museum or gallery is planning look at its program you can look at what other places are doing kind of keep notes and track of campaigns you've really enjoyed and like dig into why you've enjoyed them. 
Like a recent example was in the sector that I've seen. It's something as simple as like York Museum's curator battle. I don't know if you've seen that. People love it when organizations talk to each other in a human way. And York Museum realized that and during the pandemic started trying to set off curator battles between museums. Like who's got the best object relating to this? And like they did it's very one niche. It's niche, but it it really broke out of that bubble of just people who follow museums. Yeah. Because it was getting people to share their most interesting stuff and seeing a wide variety of it at the same time. Everybody loves a battle. And they really like played into that. Like you had that element of competition, but also you were finding out something new, something very unique from history that you wouldn't have known about. And yeah, it just managed to reach way more people than just saying, here's an object. It's looking at the gaps of what people are doing as well. And I'm like incredibly self-critical, so I know the Royal Academy of Arts has a ton of gaps. It's even at the very simplest of saying, at the moment you are just saying too many things that just don't end anywhere. Like you need to find ways of being more interactive. You're not fully taking full um, advantage of Instagram stories and all the different ways you can get people to interact with you. Or I've seen the effect of you doing this thing on TikTok and here's how you could apply that to this thing you're doing at the Academy. So it's not like saying you need to come up with the silver bullet creative idea. It's just like being open to seeing the opportunities, I think. How would you describe what you do now? So my job is described as social media and editorial content manager. It's a big title. It's a big title. It's a lot of words. It's a lot of words. And I feel like I'm still in the process of trying to figure out what that is. But I feel like everyone is in their jobs, to be honest, most of the time. Um, But practically day-to-day, it's managing the day-to-day of the social media. It's replying to people, getting that content calendar filled. It's also working on longer-term projects. Like, we have exhibitions coming up. Who can we commission to write for us? What kind of content can we create from this? What kind of stories can we tell? Um, And it's also managing our news and blog section of the website. So what formats are we doing? Do we have one for learning? How do we talk about the collection in an interesting way? How do we keep on the tab of what's happening in the art world? I feel like it's a job that's got the potential to almost decide the public voice of the Royal Academy. But that means essentially collaborating with everyone to figure out that voice and how it comes through in content, not doing it just by myself. I see it evolving into a much more collaborative, facilitating role where we we do the legwork of saying this is what works, here's what our expertise says we should be doing with content, but it's really finding the stories and empowering other people in the organisation to then be a part of that. Online content is becoming part of everyone's jobs and we need to bring them with us rather than just say, no, we're the only ones that can do it. What's the best day look like and what's the worst day look like in your job? On a bad day, I have back-to-back meetings, which are actually really essential as part of building this wider mission of what we're doing with content. But it means I don't have the time that I really want to give to talk to people and keep that conversation going. Because we do a daily doodle every day on our Twitter. And it's built up what is gold dust for people on social media, where we have people responding to us every day here's a picture I've drawn based on your challenge. And I feel like if I was working at a small museum and we had 30 people sending us their drawings every day, it would be something I'd talk about at conferences. It's just just imagining someone seeing my tweet, drawing something on their kitchen table, taking a picture and sending it to the academy, and then I don't reply. It gets me down like, that's what I want to do. Actually, the best days recently, we were all on furlough for Fridays, but I've been brought back to work on Fridays. And actually, my Fridays are my favourite day. 
because it's a day of no meetings and it's a day where I can just concentrate on maybe editing a blog from our learning team about why we should take child art seriously and art history. I could also be working on a more like list article blog about an upcoming exhibition. And it actually gives me the space to do what I think I still love about this job, which is replying to people and starting conversations on social media and actually having the time and space to do community management, which is the core of the job. He's so right. Community management is at the heart of the job. And it's really nice to hear him talk about that. I'm curious because he he touched on this. Actually, if you are that first port of call, if you like, you know, that is where when people are happy about something, they will say it. And if they're not happy about something, they will say it. A lot of extreme emotions on social media, isn't it? Yes, it's all about outrage in one way or another. <laughs> the team members who are having to read all of this every single day on behalf of the organisation, yes, it's addressed to the organisation, but they are still individuals that are potentially having to read anything from really positive things, but then a lot of negative things. Mm. And sometimes to the extent of trolling or hate speech or that kind of thing. You manage a team that have to interact with the public on that on behalf of our organisation, you know, and how do you support them with that? I think you're right. That well-being, when you work in social media, like Adam talks about, comes in different guises. So one is about how do you separate out your personal and professional, right? Whether that's having a separate work phone so that actually when I'm on Twitter for Sadler's Wells, that's over there. And on my own personal time, it's here, right? So that that's part of it. But then the really hard thing that you're talking about is how do you think about well-being in relationship to sometimes very difficult conversations online? When you, and this is the power of social media, but you are the voice of the organization on a day-to-day basis. So it, it comes with a lot of responsibility. And we've been having a lot of conversations, and I know Adam's been having conversations, but the sector's been having a lot of conversations about how do we support people? Create time and space for what we call emotional toil, time off in lieu. Going, if I if I know that actually at this time, I'm going to have to monitor our Twitter thread, and I know that there's a conversation that's happening, I'm going to schedule periods of time in for myself to recover from that. But then also knowing that you have your colleagues, but you should also, if you need, have professional support available to you to be able to deal with that, that type of interaction online that, that unfortunately is part and parcel of the job, but doesn't mean it should just be brushed away going, it's your job, so just sort it out and deal with it. And how we balance those things is a really live, important conversation in the industry And one we're getting better at dealing with, but I wouldn't claim to have all the answers at all. So community management is huge. And last summer in the arts, across in every sector, for example, with Black Lives Matter, there was a huge pressure on organisations to not only publicly respond, but also publish what actions they were taking. Mm -hmm. It's this really interesting point around how social media can be the kind of pressure, the campaigning tool to Mm -hmm. affect real change. I think it's really about where where the conversation's happening, right? Most people, if they want to talk to you about an issue... And you're an organization, the quickest, simplest way to do that is through social media. And so social media becomes the coalface of the conversation Mm. with your audiences, with your customers, with your visitors, right? With anyone who you're interacting with. That conversation you have on social media can instigate the really important questions and force organizations to make change, to be thinking about things in a different way than they might have done or at a pace that's faster than they might have done because the conversation is live and it's public. And that's why it's really exciting 
that whether it's Black Lives Matter or it's the response to coronavirus or it's public funding for the arts, all of these big questions that are affecting our sector, actually a lot of change is bubbling up from conversations that are being had on social media. The flip side of that is how do you as an organization harness that for positive change and actually not just let it be a conversation on social media, like Adam's saying, but really go, that conversation can then lead us to change and to changing who we are and how we do things. And decent change as well, not just quick fixes. Meaningful, impactful change. So I loved the Elon Musk Tesla anecdote. It's great. And I I love also that, you know, someone who had been working in museums then went and worked for a corporate, albeit for, you know, not the longest period of time, but still that would have been incredible experience for him. And then he was able to take that back to the Royal Academy. And I just think it's a fantastic example of someone taking a risk. Mm. And I think also an example of the skills required to work in these industries in most of the jobs that we're talking about on this podcast can be transferred. Those skills are transferable to any number of other industries. Absolutely. Not only are your skills transferable, but you can take those risks and you can go and dip your toe in elsewhere. But then, you know, like Adam did, he thought, you know what, this isn't really for me. And it was fine. That was great. He would have learned so much more from having gambled something and, you know, stepped outside of his comfort zone because that's where our learnings really begin, I, I think. I think it's quite an inspiring story. Yeah. Also larger than life, which we love as well. Yeah, of course we do. Also, I mean, come on, a curator battle. Yes. How much fun is that? Can we? How can we do that? Can we have a dance battle? Because we, we need to pick another organization. I'm going to throw it out there. The Joyce across the Atlantic, are they interested? Phoebe, our social media colleagues are going to kill you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think the more important thing about that is what he was talking about in terms of organizations speaking to each other. Yeah. Right? So you, you've developed this tone of voice for the organization and it has a personality. Yeah. And the organization organization's personality can interact with another organization's personality in the same way that it can interact with individuals. And we love that conversation in social media. And I think the more organizations like ours can encourage that, the more you create entryways for people into the stuff that you do. Well, it's humor, isn't it? It's humor. It's it's just being human. Yeah. Why should I care about your organization and why should I care about what you do? If you can bring these stories to life yeah. and go, this is why you might care. And this is the personality of this object or this person or this dance or, or this artist. Yeah. Then what you're doing is creating an ecosystem that lets people in. Yeah. And that's meaningful. So I want to thank Adam for joining us on Arts Work. It was really interesting to chat to him. And if you want to know about all of his viral animal tweets and memes, check out the show description. They're all there. You can follow them online, especially on Twitter. Arts Work is brought to you by Sadler's Wells in association with Barclays Dance Pass. Your hosts are Ankur Bahel and Phoebe Reith. The producer is Hester Kant, and the series is mixed by Paul Brogdon. So if you can think of anyone who would really enjoy this and you want to send it to them, please do. It would make us really happy. And please give us some stars or reviews. It really helps other people find it. You've got to know somebody who works in social media, wants to work in social media, or is just on TikTok all the time. Send them this episode.